the screen, the, the reading tonight is from 1 Timothy 6, verses 2 to 10, which can be found on page 1194 of the Church Bible. False teachers and the love of money. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now to contextualise this, um, Ed asked me to read to the end whilst Andrew is preaching from the verses 1 to 10. Would you like me to continue or shall I keep it? Let's leave it there. Fantastic, thank you. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, thank you. Thank you, Ray. Let's just pray, shall we? wonderful word that we have in our hands. We thank you for the instruction that uh, by your spirit you would speak into each one of our hearts. And we pray that we might be open before you, that where you are speaking to us individually and challenging us individually or corporately, that we might hear what the spirit expressly says to each one of us. We ask it for the Lord Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Isn't it wonderful to be able to sing of the wonderful Saviour who loves us? I, I, I love that song. And, uh, you know, that's going to be our theme, I think, throughout all eternity, uh, to sing of this wonderful person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the centre and delight of the Father's heart uh, in everything. And, and, and we're going to see him, and we're going to be with him, and we're going to sing the wonderful Saviour who loves me. I think it's just absolutely astounding, astonishing. It's grace beyond all grace. And, and as the aged uh, apostle here writing, closing off his first letter to Timothy, uh, this young pastor uh, in, in Ephesus, who was already beginning to experience many of the, the trials and tribulations that Ed has probably already experienced since he's come to Chesham and wherever he was before. Um, I'm not saying there, there's all sorts of false teaching arising in, in this church, far from it. But nevertheless, every one of us has to be very much on our guard. And the, the, the theme, I think, of the whole series has been guarding the truth or, or something like that. And we have the truth. 
We know the mind of Christ. He has given us of his Holy Spirit in order to bring this truth right into our hearts and into our lives and to teach us about the things that really matter concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful privilege? I, I think it's absolutely, uh, absolutely astounding that God in his grace uh, should do such a thing. And, and, and I was just, just before, while actually while Ray was leading, uh, reading, I have to say my mind wandered, or my eyes wandered a little bit. And, and, and uh, verse 8 of Paul's second epistle, by now Paul is in prison, and he's writing to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony. Don't be ashamed of the testimony. We're living in a world that has no time for the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're living in a world which would uh, uh, treat him in just the same way as it did 2,000 years ago. But we have a testimony written not on fleshy tables, not on stony tables, but on the fleshy tables of our hearts. We have Christ living within us. And what's even greater is that he has us written on his chest and on his hands. And I think that's absolutely a wonderful thing. But Paul is really, really concerned for Timothy. Obviously, things had been coming to him, um, uh, to, uh, to Paul, that were causing great concern. And he knew he was near the end of his life. And, and so he's taken it upon himself in this first letter uh, to write, to encourage this young uh, pastor uh, to, to build him up in his faith, to help him and encourage him. And you know, that's a wonderful thing. Even at my age of 75, I love to be encouraged. I think there's no greater thing to encourage one another in the things of God. I remember when, when I was um, uh, small, um, and then as I was slowly beginning to grow up, and Mary and I were uh, going out together in our teens, and, and I was brought up in a, in a um, in a, in a Brethren Assembly up in Manchester that Gary knows of, I think. And, and uh, it was our lot every, every fortnight. Visiting preachers would come from all over the country. And um, uh, it was really strange. You know, first of all, you begin to think, oh, I've not got my house to myself anymore. So-and-so's coming, or so-and-so's coming. And my dad would be taken up and speaking very eruditely with this erudite brother about the things of God. And, 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 and yet, you know, as we began to get older, and got older and older and older still, and I now look back, and somebody said to me just recently at a, at a, at a conference, what was it like to have those elderly people coming to your house? What was it like? People who, who are well known in the Christian world, who have gone to glory, perhaps long since, but who've written many books about the scriptures. And, and, and I read these and I think, gosh, what opportunities I missed to just listen to what they had to say, instead, and I, instead of which Mary and I would be rushing out to go to the fair or something like that, didn't we? Things like that. Um, and, 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 but, but these were godly men. Godly men who'd, who'd spent their lives studying the scriptures. And I can remember one old brother who every day, old Mr. Hughes from Walsall, and, and he went on well into his 90s, but Mr. Hughes would sit in the lounge with a handkerchief on his head. And he had a handkerchief on his head and just over there to distract, so that he wouldn't be distracted from anything 
except his open Bible in front of him all day. All day he was absorbed in this book. And others like him. And many times I wish, oh, I wish they'd come back and I could listen to them again. I'm going to spend eternity listening. Well, not listening to them, no, because I'm going to be seeing the Lord. But nevertheless, the blessings of those days. And when Timothy received this letter from the aged apostle, he must have thought, oh, here's somebody who really cares for my soul. We need to do that one with another, brothers and sisters. We need to care for one another's souls. We need to pray for one another. We need to be a blessing to one another. We need to speak of the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, one with another. Having said that, Paul is writing to him because there have been dangers coming into Ephesus. And, and if you cast your mind back to the, to the first chapter, there were, there were suggestions that there was some legalism rules and regulations coming into that church to try and say you can do this and you can't do that. And, and then in chapter 4, if you go on to chapter 4, you'll find uh, a different sort of wrong teaching that was beginning to come in, which I'm going to call asceticism. And if you don't know what asceticism is, it's a form of self-denial to a ridiculous extreme that almost like a monk if you like, who are the great ascetics. And, and, and by, by depriving yourself of so much, you can draw nearer to God. How far from the truth that is. But then we get to chapter 6, and there's more false teaching coming in. And Paul is so concerned for Timothy that he should know that he is to watch out, beware, and shun these things, flee from them. In fact, he says, have nothing to do with them at all. And, and um, in, in, in this particular uh, one, there was the whole concept of, of, of godliness. Now we're going to look at what godliness means, because every one of us would want to be truly godly. But my uh, lovely old mum, who was very quaint in what she used to say, those of you who knew her and met her, remember her quaintness, she would see people who were really lovely people and she would look at them and she would listen to them and she said, you know, such a lovely person, they could almost be Christians. Almost be Christians. And she used to talk like that sometimes about this and she'd really, she would go away and pray for them that they would become Christians. So we mustn't let get hold of the idea that godliness means somebody is a Christian, full stop, going to glory. That isn't what the Bible teaches at all. And we're going to see why. But in that early church, the gospel was going out so powerfully and, and, and so wonderfully through the teachings of different people, but Timothy in, in Ephesus in particular. And there were many people coming to know the Lord Jesus as their saviour. And, and, and that's a tremendous thing. Oh, God grant that it, the same is here in Chesham. That many people come to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And as young and not so young, and even Bernardy young, um, uh, of such an age, you know, let us not be ashamed of this testimony to the Lord Jesus. We covet people for Christ. And this is what Timothy was doing. But because of the circumstances of that, 
the gospel is going out to all sorts, rich and poor, but you know, the, you know how it is. More often, perhaps, it's those who are less rich who are more receptive. And that's really sad, but maybe, uh, as he says later in the chapter, maybe people have become so obsessed with making a little bit more money and a little bit more money that actually it takes the focus off what really matters in life. And I'm not talking about the Glazers trying to buy Manchester United and screw the extra half billion out of anybody. I would love them to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> yes, pigs might fly, you might say. But with God, anything is possible. But because the gospel was going out and people were being converted, there was not a few servants, not a few slaves uh, in that church who were working for bosses in that assembly in Ephesus. Now, this is a bit of a tricky situation, isn't it? Put yourself in that situation, that supposing your boss um, was a really, supposing your boss was, I don't know, some really famous Christian man in the local assembly, and you were in a position where you didn't really know for yourself whether or not you were Christian. And then you became a Christian. Now then, how are you going to react? How are you going to speak with your boss? Because he's still your boss. And you still have to show him great respect. And you still have to be to him what God has called you to be. And if you want the prime example of that, think of, uh, read the book of Philemon. I'm not going to read it to you now or even tell you about Philemon. It's only a short chapter. Read it before you go to bed tonight. It's really interesting and instructive. And so chapter 6 here begins with, with Paul teaching Timothy or telling him about how godliness applies to him and to them in that assembly and to us today. You might say, well, slavery shouldn't take place in Christianity at all, and they were, but they were still slaves. As the Roman, uh, Roman kingdom went on, it wasn't long, actually, before slavery began to diminish very much, which is quite surprising. Um, because the Romans were great masters, slave masters. But it wasn't long. But it always hung about, and it took the likes of, um, I suppose, William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce, many centuries later in this country, to, to seek to abolish it altogether. But these things, Paul didn't involve himself in that. And you may say, why not? Should he not have been preaching to Timothy about listen, you've got to sort out this slavery business in the church in Ephesus. It's not right. Why didn't he? He addressed how slaves should behave towards their master. Why did he not say anything different? Well, you know, you can come to various conclusions. I believe that perhaps Paul's heart was really for the gospel, first and foremost. And he wanted Timothy to have that same heart for the gospel and, 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 and leave the rest of the Lord because the Lord is wonderfully gracious. He's a wonderful saviour who we love dearly. And those saints were just the same. And they would have known. And when he wrote to Onesimus from prison, he, he said, Onesimus, receive this man, um, to Philemon, receive this slave back who came to me, uh, fled from your house, had been converted in Rome here. And I'm sending him back to you. I'd rather he stayed with me, said Paul, because he's a blessing to me but receive him back graciously. Remember that he's even as my own soul. 
Isn't that a wonderful example of the grace to be found? And how he was accepted fully back into that church, not as, uh, as far as we know, as a slave, but as a fellow believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but still a servant. Still a servant. Are we not bondservants to the Lord of glory? We not, did Paul not write about slavery? Not a, the sort of slavery that the world knows, but a slavery to Christ. What is our attitude, therefore, to how we serve him? Do we gripe about being on lesser pay than we should be in heaven? Do we think, oh, this is a bit demeaning? No, we sing about the wonderful Savior who loves us. Wonderful grace that he pours out on us day by day by day. He loves to do it, and he loves to draw us to ourselves. And in so doing, our hearts are so filled with his glory and majesty that there's no class distinction. No. He's my saviour. He's my lord. He's plucked me from a dunghill, and he's set me amongst princes. That's what the Bible says. And I think it's wonderful that we can get to know that and understand that. But the gospel was beginning to be used for material gain by certain in that place. And you'll read about it in the later chapters of, of, of the book of the Acts, about 16 to 18. Remember the, 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 the girl who, when Paul had been preaching, uh, the girl said, here, this is the servant of the Most High God. And her bosses said, hang on a minute, it's doing us out of business. Don't you let that sort of thing go on at all. Yes, the gospel changes lives. The gospel changes lives in such a wonderful way that you're never the same again. Never, never. What a wonderful saviour we have. So what does Paul exactly mean then by godliness? Well, I mentioned in chapter 4 that he'd been talking there about this new idea of asceticism, self-denial coming in. And, and, and he started off chapter 4 by saying, he says, the Holy Spirit speaks expressly, or explicitly is the word. He makes no distinction at all. He doesn't mince words. He's absolutely sure and certain because he's God. And therefore, he is right. And the Spirit speaks expressly about the challenges facing the early church. And if they were facing the early church, these challenges are facing the church today every bit of great, as great, if not greater. We don't need to talk about that. But he was speaking and encouraging Timothy to stand firm in the defense of the faith against all that these false teachers would, would seek to bring in, whether they were legalists, whether they were ascetics, ascetics that's the word, um, or, or, or whether they were those who thought the gospel might bring him a bit of extra cash, a bit of bakshi money. And, and, and we don't have to look very far to see sometimes the magnificent, sickening wealth of the professing church. I remember being in Manila years ago on a, on a missionary trip there and seeing outside the cathedral in Manila, the most magnificent place you could ever put St. Peter's and Rome to shame, honestly. The gold and, and, and the, the glitz, everything about it. And out in the gutter on the front door were people weeping, begging for money, being turned away. And I've never forgotten it. 
but there's a way that the devil teaches people that, oh, money is a little money, the love of money is a good thing, build it up. You know, you might need it for a rainy day. Or if the Lord in his grace gives us money, let's be very challenged as to how we use it and where we use it. He tells them, Paul tells Timothy, reminds him of, of what, is, what they'd spoken, what had been spoken in the second chapter of the book of the Acts, <coughs> long before Saul of Tarsus was converted. But he said, in those early days in the church, they continued daily in the apostles' doctrine and in the breaking of bread and the fellowship together. They continued daily. Do we continue daily in the apostles' doctrine in our own lives? Do we seek that which comes from Scripture alone? Are we like those saints in Berea who didn't listen to what Andrew Shepherd or Ed Millay or anyone else said from the platform until they'd actually gone back and looked into their scriptures? Is this really so? I'll promise you one thing, you'll be astounded because it'll be infinitely greater than anything that was ever said from the platform. Isn't that wonderful? I often think of those two on the road to Emmaus. Our hearts burned within us. We didn't even know who he was. But our hearts were burning within us as he talked with us, by the way, and spoke in all the scriptures of things concerning himself. We were purchased at far, far, far greater price than any slave in Ephesus, Rome, or anyone else. You were bought with a price, Paul said one in 1 Corinthians 6. Peter said, it's not with silver or gold that you are redeemed, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for you and for me in order that we might know what it is to have eternal life. Yet there were men then, as now, as he goes on to say, coming into the church and teaching just the very opposite. And, and the apostle here points them out to Timothy, and he says these people are characterized by two things, pride and ignorance. He says so in verse 4. He's proud. He knows nothing. He's obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings over words, trying to make out something means different to what it actually says. They suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Godliness is a means of gain, is their supposition. And then he says, from such, withdraw yourself. They know nothing. They're wasting their lives. And yet, they've got into the church and are beginning to bring their doctrines in amongst you. And they come in like the angel that uh, we don't entertain unawares, or you know, the, the one that gets in unawares into your home, we think, oh, that was an angel. And they went away. These people can get into the church unawares. We have to be, Timothy, you have to be, each one of us here has to be on our guard, ready every day, totally dependent upon the word of God and what the Lord Jesus Christ has to say. But he goes further. He says that these men are using their perceived godliness 
as a means of gain. Get rich quick, go to church. You'll meet all sorts of generous people there. I'm not saying that's what they did say. That was the beginning of their perversion, if you like, into loving money. So what exactly then is godliness? Come back to the word. He spent the whole epistle writing about godliness. What exactly? Do you want to be godly? Or do you want to be godly with great gain? Do you want to be godly in a thoroughly Christian way? Do you want people like my mum to say, oh, you're a Christian, aren't you? Not you could be a Christian. You are a Christian. I can tell by the way that you are. What is true godliness? Well, I'll tell you one thing, it isn't. It's exactly the opposite to what their perceived godliness was in verse 4. The one who's proud, knowing nothing, etc., etc., but knows it all. I, I, I did try to find a definition of it, and I found in Vine's dictionary the following, which I quite like, actually. <coughs> it's defined as this, listen. The reverential attitude to God produced by sound teaching working effectively in the life of a believer. The reverential attitude to God produced by sound teaching working effectively in the life of a believer. Where do we get that from? From here. Knowing Jesus, so the, the, that lovely chorus from Philippians 3. It's the greatest thing to know him. The most wonderful thing that could ever be in your life, and I trust that everybody here knows him personally and longs to know him more deeply. He died for us, he gave his life for us. And he wants us to, to know him in deeper and deeper understanding of the wonderful Savior who loves me, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. But it isn't just a matter of godliness and leaving it at that. The Holy Spirit here adds a totally new dimension. How can we be godly? And, 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 and here we have it in the, in the remainder of the, the first few verses that it's only dependence on God that makes a believer able to be independent of everything that's going on around them. It's dependence upon God that makes the believer able to be independent of the things that go on around them. Do we get dragged down? Ed was saying you got dragged down. I get dragged. How many kids? 300? Oh, it was, I've got three. Oh, I guess I... It would have been about 160. Ah, so. drive me demented. Drive me demented. I'm done with kids. Mine are grown up. <laughs> Grandkids are a great joy, aren't they, when you can give them back and, and so on. <laughs> wonderful gift from God. Even more wonderful to give them back to their owners. But, but you know, it, it's wonderful. As they scream and bawl and shout and run around, uh, you know, we can just sit back and help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. I'm out of my depth with this. I don't know what's going on. I wish I did, but I don't. Timothy, looking at this, was in danger, perhaps, thinks Paul, of thinking, well, where's this come from? 
Where's that come from? Who's saying this and who's saying that? He says, stand firm. Stand firm in the faith. Keep your eyes firmly fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. He said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3, he said, we're not sufficient of ourselves at all. Our sufficiency is totally from God. Now, the great apostle Paul said that. My sufficiency is not on myself at all. I can't handle this, but I know one who can and one who does every day. And I've learned in Philippians 4, I learned, I've learned and learned and learned and learned and learned again so many times that in whatever state I am, therewith to be content. Can you say that? Can you say that? Can I say that? I wish I could. And here was the great Apostle Paul who was able to say that I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. That is what it is like to be godly. And such godliness is totally different from the mercenary attitude who, who th of the false teacher who thinks godliness is a way of get rich quick. The love of money, we all know it. The world knows this. The love of money is the root of all evil. They might misquote it and leave out the love of, as they often do, uh, but the love of money is the root of all evil. And to walk in the presence of the living God, day by day by day, with a simple trust in his goodness, dependent upon him every day, with contentment in your heart, that's what he gives. Come unto me, all you labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest, said the Lord Jesus. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest unto your souls. It's not rest or peace that the world knows anything about. My peace I will give to you. Contentment, true contentment of the heart leads to true godliness because it only comes from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and can do so. And that's our wonderful privilege. And once we really grasp this truth in our lives, it's going to transform us every day. Eight o'clock in the morning wasn't quite so bad as it was eight o'clock yesterday morning, or seven o'clock, or six o'clock, or whatever. But he enlarges on contentment, and my time's gone, and I'm nearly finished, promise. Um, but he, he, read Philippians, I've told you to read Philemon, read Philippians chapter four as well, because he enlarges so much on, on contentment. He says, I can accept anything now. He said, not only can I, can I accept anything, I can do anything now. And added to that, he said, I have everything and in abundance because I have Christ in my life. What more could I possibly want? God's overruling providence in his life and in yours and mine. God's unfailing power day by day in his life and in yours. And God's unchanging promises every day in his life and in ours. So he says in verses 7 and 8 here, a paraphrase, paraphrase, Timothy, train yourself to godliness. Allow the Lord Jesus Christ to take over in your life. Listen to his words. Read the scriptures, how much we need to read the scriptures. I have a thing about scriptures, on, and I'm sorry, I'm probably offending everybody here. I have a thing about 
uh, reading scriptures and always having them on little uh, telephones and things like that. Because if I say to somebody, find me Ezra 4.5, I was in the old sword drill, and the other side, blah, 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 blah. where's Ezra 4.5? Or, or where's this verse uh, and that verse? And there's, there's panic. Oh, it's wonderful to be able to pick up your Bible. I envy so many. Well done. Envied so many of these old brothers I used to watch and listen and admire and think, oh, I've got to listen to them talking tonight, because they would know exactly where to find that verse and exactly what it meant. And that's left a lasting impression on me in my life. I want to be like that. I'll say it even though it was my dad. He was like that. He was like a walking encyclopedia of the scriptures. He'd tell you any verse, wherever it was, and turn straight to it. And he said... I only learned it, my boy, that's what he called me, when he was cross with me. I only learned it because every day of my life, from when I joined the forces, I'd read a chapter of scripture. And then in the evening I wrote an essay on it without looking back at it. He said, I got to know my Bible very quickly. So, Paul is finishing up. He said, don't be like these things which are so attractive to the world that are snare, temptation, harmful lusts. Men are drowning in this today, in destruction and perdition. Drowning, literally, Paul says. They're going under like there's no tomorrow. But there is a tomorrow for all of us, because we all will face the Savior one day. Whether for judgment, if you don't know Christ, or for glory, if we do know him. So, man of God, he says, and I finish with this, you man, very African that, isn't it, Emmanuel? Man of God. That's a phrase they all use up over in Africa all the time. <laughs> oh, that's really humbling. Man of God, he says, flee, and the word is keep on fleeing these things, all kinds of evil that he's warned about. Keep on at it, keep on fleeing, never give it up. Don't let it catch you up. He says, keep on pursuing or following these other things. Never let them out of your sight. And finally, keep on fighting. Never give up in this struggle. Because in the end, it's taking us to glory. Shall we pray? Oh, Father, how wonderful. How wonderful is the gospel, that it can change the lives of each one of us here and has done to take us from something which is so far away from you without hope, without God in the world, that has lifted up from a dunghill and set us amongst princes. Oh, help us, everyone, never to be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, and may that a lasting daily effect which changes and grows as we get to know the Lord Jesus more and more. May it so grow in our hearts and our lives that people will mark us out as belonging to him. Thank you for your wonderful grace, wonderful Savior. Amen. Amen.